All right, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, and as you are turning there, if you don't know where that is, elbow the person next to you and they can help you locate Acts chapter 15. Um, we have a little demonstration so that we can have a little tangible handhold for later on in the sermon. So, I've asked my lovely assistant here if he would be so kind as to play a G chord for me. <clears throat> lovely, right? He's a skilled musician. So, that is a chord, right? So we have uh, several individual notes that are all within the same scale working together in something we call harmony. So when all of those notes, it's not the same note, it's all individual notes, but when you put them together, when they are all within the same scale, then we have harmony. Now if you would be so kind, lovely assistant, to Move up one fret, and first play each note individually, if you wouldn't mind. Some of you are already nervous, and you should be. Let her rip. That feels kind of gross, right? Like, you don't have to be musical to go, ugh. That is called discord, or dissonance. And what that is, is individual notes that are not a part of the same scale when they are together make your skin crawl. It's weird, right? One more time. Kids, does that sound good or bad? Bad, yes. You don't need a music degree to know that that is awful. Thank you, kids, for your help. And Jason, thank you very much. So what we have this week in Acts chapter 15 is a narrative passage, and it's one that might be really easy to kind of gloss over, right? Sometimes your, your Bible uh, will often have little subheadings here. Uh, those are not actually in the original text. We added those as in the translation just to kind of help uh, make it easier to organize uh, and to find things that we're looking for. But uh, yours might say something along the lines of the Jerusalem Council, and uh, it might be easy to skip over this because few people are super excited about reading the minutes from a board meeting, which is practically what this is. Um, this particular meeting, however, is hugely influential in the direction of the church and our understanding of how we are saved. So it is absolutely worth our time to dig in and explore. And the reality is when you do start to dig in to what's happening in this chapter, uh, we, it is actually so loaded that we could easily do one of our uh, six-week classes just unpacking all of the things that are happening in this. But we don't have time to do six classes worth, um, so we're going to do a bit of a flyover, and then we'll lead the, leave the deeper digging to uh, you and your community and the Holy Spirit to do together. So what we have here, one more thing that I want to point out before we read is several times in Acts, Luke will do, he'll use this narrative technique where he will describe an event and then he will describe somebody describing the event that just happened. Or you may have noticed that's happened a couple times already and that's 
that while, while that might seem redundant, it technically is, uh, it is intentional redundancy. So authors repeat things for a reason. They repeat things because they really want us to pay attention. There's something that they're wanting us to see in there or notice, and so they say it over again. Sometimes in Acts, Luke will do that because he wants to see uh, if he wants us to see that the person in the narrative understands what just happened. Right? So we know that Jesus blinded Paul and then redeems him. But does Paul know that? And then a chapter later, Paul will tell the story of what happened, and we all go, oh, yes, okay, Paul's on the same page. He knows what just happened. He understands what's, what's going on. We know that that dream that Peter had about the big tarp full of animals that Jay talked about a few weeks ago, like we know because we get the bird's eye view of the narrator that that is God saying, like, I am opening the door to the Gentiles to hear the gospel. So all people who are not Jewish can also hear the gospel. So we know that because we have the narrator. But does Peter understand that? And so he then records Peter telling all the other apostles, what happened, and we can go, ah, yes, Peter understands. Does that make sense? We're tracking so far? So the redundancy is helpful in that regard. Uh, and sometimes it's just, he's just repeating himself because there is something really important and really essential truth about who God is or about his church or, uh, or, or uh, something, something of that magnitude that he does not want us to miss. And I think this is kind of a combination of both. There's both something really essential that he's not wanting us to miss and he's wanting to demonstrate when he says everyone here is on the same page, everyone's actually on the same page. Okay, so now let's all get on the same page together. In 15, I'm going to pray for us one more time before we do this. Spirit, we trust when you tell us that we cannot fully understand this book without your help. We believe that that is true, and so we ask you to please be the lens that we see these words through and, and, and understand them through. Help us to see them through the lens of who Jesus is and what he has done in his gospel. That it would encourage those of us who feel defeated. That it would humble those of us who feel prideful or self-righteous. That it would breathe life and light into the darkness and awaken our sleepy souls. I thank you for your word and the privilege that it is to hold it in our hand and allow us to take it for granted, but change us through it. Amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about the problem, and then the solution, and then the response. In light of the solution, how do they expect the church to live? So the problem starts right out of the gate. Uh, there's a but there, right? So that means... It's assuming that we've been following the narrative up until this point. So uh, if we backtrack a few verses, we'll see that Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, the missionary church, and, uh, and so things are going well. However, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, that's a word we're going to say a whole lot that I'm not going to define. I'll leave that to you, parents, for the drive home. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail 
the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here is the problem. The problem is we have a group of people from within the church, believers who are following Jesus from within the church who are saying, you must follow the law of Moses. Even doing some things first according to the law before Jesus can accept you. So we need to understand what a big deal this is. They are going way beyond saying, hey, you need to act a little more Jewish, Gentiles, and and they are deforming the gospel into a false works righteousness transactional agreement with God. If I obey these things, God must accept me. If I do not obey these things, God cannot accept me. This is, we cannot overstate what a big deal this is and why this distinction is so important. Anytime we express the belief that a person cannot be saved unless they first obey some law, either by doing something or to stop doing something, we are lying and spreading a false gospel. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, which is likely written right around this time, as this discussion is going on, it's working its way up through the region of Galatia and the churches that Paul had just recently visited. He's now having to write a letter to them to deal with this very issue. And what he says is he calls anyone who proclaims this false gospel anathema or cursed. He says, if I say this to you or an angel from heaven comes and declares this from you, to you, let them be accursed. It is a lie and a false gospel. Why would he make such a big deal out of this? Why is it not just like, I mean, it's just like, you still have the cross, you're just like adding a little something to it. Well, he's going to tell the Galatians, because if right standing before God came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's why this is a big deal. You are not just adding to the cross as though it were insufficient, right? Which is already absurd. You are negating it completely and declaring it worthless. Poor, foolish, misguided Jesus wasted his time and died for no reason. That should make you feel a little nauseated hearing that. I hope it does, because that's blasphemy. This is why this is such a big deal. By amending the gospel, we reject the gospel entirely and reject Jesus completely. Robbie, don't be silly. You're making way too big a deal out of this. Plus, this is just your opinion, so I don't have to believe that. If this was just my opinion, absolutely, you can, 
You can dismiss that. But it's not my opinion. It's the Holy Spirit's opinion. Because we believe that this book is not just a gathering of a bunch of dudes' thoughts on God. That we can choose to dismiss and reject and accept the pieces that we agree with and we're comfortable with and affirm us and just reject the stuff that we don't agree with. We're just crazy enough to believe that this book was breathed out by God and that it is His self-revelation of what is real and what is illusion. If you want to know why on earth I would believe something like that, I would be happy to talk to you after service today. I'll be hanging out right here and we can talk about that. But based on that presupposition that this is the God-breathed word of the living creator saying this is what is actual reality, not my opinions, not my assumptions, not the ways that I am culturally formed, but this right here, then the spirit of the living God through Paul tells us, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law, every single word of it. You are severed from Christ. That is a horrifying statement. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. This is not a little nuance. This is preaching something that will sever people from Christ. Trying to gain our standing with God by our obedience to the rules is a rejection of grace, a rejection of Christ. And we are left to rely on our own perfection our own ability to keep every rule all the time, every moment, forever. And I hate to break it to you, but that's not going to happen. You have not and will not achieve perfection, and neither will I. Only one in all of human history has. And as a, my missionary buddy likes to say, I earn hell on my very best days. If we tell someone that Jesus cannot accept them until they stop sinning first, we are sinning in that declaration because we are falsely representing Jesus and the gospel and we are encouraging people to turn away from Jesus and onto self-reliance the exact opposite of faith in Christ. That's why I call these first five verses a problem. If it is that we must fix ourselves and then Jesus will have us, that burden will crush you. And honestly, it's crushing many of us in this room right now. The fear that we have not been good enough that we have not accomplished enough, that our past is too dark and too scarred to ever be accepted by Jesus. 
And we can say intellectually, yes, I know Jesus loves me, but there is a huge asterisk on the end of that. It says, but it doesn't feel like it. And I'm not actually sure I believe that. Because the weight of my sin feels way heavier than the power of the gospel and what he has declared to be true. But when we believe what Scripture declares, it is not once we clean ourselves up, once we obey certain laws or stop sinning in certain ways, that Jesus will then sacrifice himself for us. We believe what Scripture declares, which is that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Not once we became His friends, then now we can be reconciled. We are reconciled or brought back into right relationship with Him in the midst of our rebellion so that we can now live as friends, as sons and daughters. That's the gospel. That's why we call this really good news. Because I got to be honest with you, do everything right or God can't accept you is terrible news. That is not good news at all. That's the worst. That is hopeless. So, praise God, they believed this too. And so this is why they came up with the solution that they did. They say, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is, there was debate about this because this is tough. We're, we're about 20 years after, after the time of Jesus. So we've been at this for a couple of decades, but this is still a baby church, right? This is an infant church. We're just going, wait a minute, you mean non-Jews can be a part of this thing? So we are really early on in this process. And so this is a big deal. It's confusing. Jesus was the fulfillment of the, holy, of the, of the Hebrew scriptures. They believed that. But then what does that mean for the law? Like this thing that has been a part of us, like baked in for generations, like do do we just like toss that? Like what do we do with that? This is a difficult question for them. So there is much debate. They gathered together and they considered the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. Isn't that cute? He's like, you know, in the early days, for us, this is almost 2,000 years ago, and for them, it's like 20 years ago, but, but it's already like it's been 20 years of this. So he says, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's the solution. God made a choice, he says. God declared something to be true, to be real, to include the Gentiles, which as far as I know is pretty much all of us in this room. 
that they would hear the gospel, that they would believe the gospel, that he would look at their hearts rather than at their works, that he would give them the Holy Spirit, that he would make no distinction between them and the Jewish believers, and that he would cleanse their hearts by what? By faith, rather than by obedience to the law. And I love that he says, why on earth would we put a burden on them that we were incapable of carrying? What a, what a great argument. Not even we were able to be saved by obeying the law. And it's our law. Like, why would we tell the Gentiles to obey this thing that's totally foreign to them and is useless in accomplishing their salvation? Peter brings them right back to the reality that it is by grace alone through faith alone, received as a gift from God that restores our broken relationship with God. That's it. There's no other means. And while obedience is an essential aspect of living in our restored relationship with God, it plays no part whatsoever in achieving that relationship. Does that make sense? It can't acquire it but it is the obvious and natural outflowing of it once we have received that. So we don't swing the pendulum all the other side and say, obedience doesn't matter, free for all. The whole book of Corinthians is about, hold up, guys. Like, let's, let's tighten things up a little bit. We've gone a little haywire. But that is after you have been redeemed and saved by grace through faith. That whole achieving reconciliation is all God. The sometimes rather embarrassing reality is that my contribution to my salvation is the sin and rebellion that made it necessary. That's it. That's my part. I broke it. And only Jesus fixes it. Peter is reminding his Jewish brothers that they were not saved by keeping the law, that no one could be. They needed Jesus. Therefore, the Gentiles should not be required to keep the law in order to be saved, but must also depend on Jesus. So, then we get a response. And so after, after this, it says, all the assembly fell silent, right? Peter drops the mic goes back to his seat and there's silence over the assembly. Then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas stand up and go, yeah, like without even knowing what the law is, the Holy Spirit has fallen on them and and radical transformation is happening simply because they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they tell the story, everyone's excited about that, and it says, after they finished speaking, James, who is the brother of Jesus and the one who wrote the book of James, which is toward the end of the Bible, the end of the New Testament, he stands up and says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related of how God first visited the Gentiles to, make, to take from them a people for his name. And then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So he says, our own scripture says this is going to happen, guys. Remember? 
says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Huh? We might go, wait, what? That seems a little confusing. It says, for in, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read in every Sabbath and in the synagogues. And we think, well, that seems a little, a little odd. If we keep reading, we get a little bit more context. So they, they all agree that this is an excellent idea. And so they write a letter. And the letter says this in verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, this is the redundant part. Like, so James just says that, and then now they repeat it. Here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are, in, uh, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your mind, although we gave them no instruction. So he said, hey, they may be saying, like in Galatians, Paul says, like, and some people from James came to you. He just means, like, people from the Jerusalem church because James here is saying, I did not send them. I did not tell them to say that. He says, they have unsettled your mind. He said, it seems good to us having come to one accord. So he's saying, look, we're all in unanimous agreement here to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the very same things by word of mouth. So he's saying, we're sending a whole bunch of people who are all going to tell you the same story. We are all in agreement on this. For it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so they do. So they send these, church, these letters out to these churches. They carry them. They share the story of what has happened in this council, and people rejoice. It is excellent news to all of them. So if you're confused, you're going, wait a minute, we just said you don't have to obey the law, and then they give them some law. It's important to understand that rather than keeping a law that cannot save them, what they do is they say, well, let's teach them how to live in mutually respectful harmony between these two now newly joined cultures. Okay, this list that they give them is not laws that they must keep in order to be saved because we just declared that to be anti-gospel nonsense. So they're not saying... That's nonsense and a rejection of the gospel. So here's how to do that nonsense and reject the gospel. No, no, they're making a distinction between these are not things that you have to do in order to be saved. These are things that among believers, we're asking the Gentiles, will you please do these things? Why would they ask them to do that? It is a list of practices that show respect and grace to their Jewish brothers and sisters who function differently and have specific dietary restrictions. To put it into our context, help it maybe make a little bit more sense, it's the equivalent of saying, don't invite your messianic Jewish neighbor over and serve them pork chops wrapped in bacon. That's super rude and weirdly and unnecessarily divisive. 
Make them something that honors their convictions. Later in his, several of his letters actually, Paul will address the importance of personal sacrifice for the sake of unity with one another. That we should be the quickest to set aside our own preferences and our own rights in order to demonstrate love and hospitality for the sake of gospel unity, both among the church and in order to not be an obstacle to those coming to the gospel. The idea is harmony. That beautiful chord that we heard. There are cultural differences between these believers and there are currently cultural differences between believers from different backgrounds, different cultures, different countries. There are differences in this room right now just based on your family of origin, your life experience, the path that God has taken you on. There is nuance and difference even just in this room. The goal is not uniformity, that we would all play the same note, but harmony. Different notes, all among the same scale, so that together when they're played, they sound lovely. There's a chord, there's resonance, and it's delightful rather than discord, which is everyone trying to play their own note regardless of what anyone else is doing or what God has declared. You remember how that sounded? Kids, did that second note sound good or bad? Bad. Yeah, grow. Yeah, that's actually that kind of, that's actually a great response. That's how it feels. That's discord. That's all of us trying to play our own note, saying, my rights, my preferences, you said that's not a law, so I don't have to do it, so I'm not doing it. Discord. Nerdy illustration. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, in one of his other books, describes the creation of Middle-earth. And because he's buddies with C.S. Lewis, there's a lot of similarities to the creation of Narnia. That both of them tell a story of the creator God of their imaginary universe singing creation into existence. And so Tolkien talks about the creator singing this melody and that each of the celestial beings that he then creates join in the chorus in harmony with the melody that he is singing and there's glorious perfection and unity across all of creation until one of them decides, I'm singing my own song. And it clashes with the perfect harmony that has been created. And then that inspires others to each sing their own song. They don't even sing the song with the one rebellious one. They all want their own song. And so it just becomes this cacophony of noise and it's just awful. He says, that's what broke the universe. Nobody wants to sing the song anymore. I think that's kind of a beautiful picture. So in light of that, Paul tells us, look, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That is what matters. So don't go 
to your brother's house from a Jewish background to join together to take communion and flagrantly eat a ham sandwich in front of them. It's just rude, selfish, and you're creating division. So for us, it's not food issues, all kinds of other things that we say, no, no, this is my right, and so I'm going to do it. This is my preference. This is how we do it in our household. And we demand that others submit to us. What Paul is going to say is, you know, we, we are the ones who sacrifice for the sake of others. And then he demonstrates what this looks like right at the beginning of chapter 16. He says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. At which point, you should hear the record scratch. He did what? We just, the, we, the, cow, the whole council... He just said, if you do this, then you abandon Christ and you're severed from him. Why on earth would he then immediately go in the next town and then ask someone to do this? Because obeying that law with the purpose, this is where context is so important. You just pull one verse out and you can come up with all kinds of crazy, bonkers ideas about God and how to live as a Christian. But when you see it as the whole, what you realize is what happened is to obey that law because you believe that obeying that law allows God or even compels God to accept you is a false gospel. And that if you are keeping one aspect of the law, you gotta keep the whole thing perfectly always until you die or you are toast. But if you are saved by grace through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished, then that transformed heart might encourage and inspire you to obey an aspect of the law simply so that you would not be an obstacle to someone else hearing the gospel or worshiping with you in unity. Those are radically different things. So after a whole debate of you don't have to do this, Paul and Timothy then say, we don't have to do this but we get to, and it is our delight to, so that we would not be an obstacle to unity within the church or people outside of the church being transformed by the gospel. That's awesome. It says, we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Anything. Practical example of that, we're winding down here. Practical example of that. We do not ask women who worship in this church to cover their heads for the duration of the worship service. Even though in the New Testament, there is a command to do so. Because we believe that there is a strong argument that that is a culturally relevant command. That based on the culture that that command was given, that was necessary. But outside of that culture, there's a principle there 
that still applies in ours, but that specific way of obeying that principle is meaningless in our culture, and so we don't demand that. However, when we travel to India and we attend a church service, my wife wears a scarf over her head because A, it's adorable, and B, because it is very culturally relevant there. And for her to not do that would communicate an irreverence and a disrespect both inside of the church and outside of the church. So Stacy does not walk into that church and say, this is not a law, you can't make me do that. Because that would be insulting and selfish and unnecessarily divisive. It is her joy to simply put on the scarf. To say, that's not a law. That doesn't have anything to do with whether or not God hears my worship or whether or not he accepts me or whether he's bummed at me. But for the sake of unity with my brothers and sisters in this place and to show the people outside of the walls that Christians are people who are honorable and respectful, she is quick to and delights in putting a scarf over her head. Some of these things that we see as no longer relevant simply aren't relevant in our culture, but still are elsewhere. I was having a discussion with my pastor friend in India while we were there and we're in a little cafe. And as we're talking about this topic, he says, well, it's funny, you know, for you Westerners, the way you talk about, you know, these, how do, how do we figure out how to apply the principles of these irrelevant commands? And he points over into the corner where there's several stacks of, uh, of sacks of uncooked rice. And he says, that particular brand of rice is all sacrificed to an idol before it's sold. Every single one of those sacks is brought before the idol. The incense is burned, the sacrifice is made, and it is given as an offering to that idol. So the people in my church need to know, is it okay for me to eat food sacrificed to idols? Will that cause my brother to stumble? Will that cause my sister to have a distorted understanding of the gospel? He says, so this isn't a principle for us. This is daily relevant reality and we are so grateful that in his kindness, the Holy Spirit would place in his word such an explicit and helpful command. Like, that's awesome. And what a great reminder that this book is, certain aspects of scripture feel more relevant in certain places and in certain times, but every word of it is written for every place and every time. So in conclusion, you know, Paul is going to restate later in the New Testament about these food issues and that it's not a law, it's a matter of kindness towards others and, a, and should be something that we are quick and ready to sacrifice, that we would sacrifice something for the sake of someone else's conscience. Uh, you, you'll notice we haven't spent much time talking about it, but you'll notice sexual immorality was also on that list. That one, every writer in the New Testament is going to double down that uh, that is not just a matter of kindness, but that is an explicit command for all people at all times because it's simply how those surrendered to Jesus Christ 
live. You are not saved by living in this better way, but saved people live in this better way. So the reason this passage can feel complicated and confusing to us is because most of us just want to know, is it a rule or isn't it? Am I supposed to do it or do I not have to do it? Just lay it out for me. I need it to be black and white. If it is, I need to make sure that I am and probably everybody else is doing it or not doing it. And if it isn't, then I don't have to do it no matter what. But Peter and Paul and more importantly Jesus are going to encourage us to ask better questions. And as Jason and Sarah come back up here, I'm going to end with just these few questions I would encourage us in light of the unity of the church, the gospel of grace, and that we would see those outside of the church transformed by the gospel, that we would ask questions like, is this faith expressing itself through love? Do we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will be? Or do we think it's because I do everything right? Does this promote unity or division? Are my actions making it easier or more difficult for this brother or sister in Christ to understand and delight in the gospel of Jesus? By God's grace, may we think of others more than ourselves because we were purchased by the blood of the one who gave all to make us his own. Amen.